Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text for this morning from the Gospel as it was read, the 10th chapter of St. Luke, in particular these words, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This is our text, dear friends in Christ. The parable that you heard this morning, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Perhaps among all the parables that our Lord told, this is one of the most familiar of them all. In fact, in some research that's been done, by going to people on the street and asking them various questions, as you've seen before, it was found that 49% of the people interviewed off the street said they knew the story of the Good Samaritan. Of those 49%, indeed 45%, even felt they knew the story of the Good Samaritan well enough that if they were asked to repeat it and to speak it, they would be able to do so. And I suppose that's why it is that we have the name Good Samaritan that's all over the place in our society. On churches and on institutions of mercy, we have not that far from us our own Good Samaritan Hospital. We have, for example, in our legislation, Good Samaritan laws that protect you from being sued for attempting to help someone who's in need, though that at times is even challenged. The Good Samaritan parable, a very popular parable, a very well-known one, the most quoted parables of our Lord, and also one of the most misunderstood parables of our Lord, the misapplied parables of our Lord as well. You see, most folks think that the story of the Good Samaritan was intended by Jesus to talk about how we are to do good to one another, and thus you have Good Samaritan hospitals or the Good Samaritan club or the Good Samaritan Law. But that's not why Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan to teach us how we are to do good for one another. That's one of the side benefits, indeed, of the parable that he tells, but that's not the real reason that he was doing it. It's really a story that tells us a lot more. It tells us, and it tells the man in the text that asked about it, it told him about his inability to do the good that we should do, and then it tells about our attempt to excuse ourselves for not doing the good that we should do. That's indicated very much in the words that come right before the story of the Good Samaritan that we hear, where the text says, But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then comes the story of the Good Samaritan. Attempting to justify himself, and who better to do that than a lawyer? You surely don't have to be a lawyer in order to attempt to justify yourself. We're all self-justifiers. At least from the time that we're small, we attempt to be self-justifiers. In fact, even St. Paul says that we have this innate ability within us to reason by first, he says, accusing and then excusing ourselves. 
That's self-justification. That's, that's saying, yes, we've done this or we haven't done this, but here's our reason for having done it or for not having done it. How often it happens in our own lives that we are justly accused of a wrong, either by our own conscience or by someone else. How often it happens then that our minds immediately begin to justify our actions or our lack thereof. Without delay, our minds engage themselves in first gear to search for reasons and for excuses to justify our actions. We have become masters at even inventing reasons to justify our sinful behavior. From the time that we're little children, our minds get involved in that whole process of self-justification. You know it. A battle breaks out between brother and sister, between brother and brother. And the first thing that happens when parents come down to settle the situation is that we point fingers to one another and say, he made me do it, or she said that, and I responded. Passing the blame off to others, justifying ourselves. Teenagers attempt to justify their disobedience by reminding parents of some bill of rights that they have, which they and their peers found who knows where. Adults attempt to justify their sinful behavior, their breaking of laws, their breaking of contracts, their breaking of hearts, their breaking of homes, their breaking of promises to God and to man. Nations attempt to justify their hostilities toward each other and also their accommodation to and their concession to social evils of every kind. We're all a people who would justify ourselves and our sin. We're a race of self-justifiers. And the world and its children and its future are our victims. We even try to justify ourselves before God. And so there's little wonder that the lawyer in our text for today asks the question that he does when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because really the question is, what must I do, Jesus, then to justify myself? What must, emphasis being, I do? He rightly knew that he didn't simply have eternal life as though it was something that he was going to get by just being a human being. He rightly knew that it wasn't just a natural outcome of being human or a natural extension of his life here on earth that he was going to have the blessings of being with God forever. He knew that that wasn't the case or he would never have asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life or in essence, to justify myself. He knew that something had to be done in order to put him into a position where he would be justified before God. His mistake, of course, was thinking that he was the one who could do it. That he could do something to get that justification that he so needed, and so he asked, what must I do? And to that direct question, Jesus gives a direct answer. And he says, I'll tell you what you must do. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. You must love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to try to justify yourself in God's eyes, then that's what you've got to do. And immediately, the lawyer saw the trap into which he had gotten himself. There was no way that he 
had loved the Lord with all of his heart and his soul and his strength and mind. Many times he had placed his own desires before God's desires, and he knew that. Many times he had placed his own agenda before God's agenda. All too often he had tried to remake God into his image so that he could do the things that he wanted to do when he wanted to do them. So many times he had partitioned off his heart, giving God a small portion of it, but giving his desires, often sinful, passionate desires, the greatest portion, his pleasures and his goals, his ambitions for life, the greater portion. If Jesus had simply said, you must love God with your heart and with your soul and with your mind, he might have been able to handle that. But no, Jesus adds that one three-letter word, the one little word, the word all. And that one little word is what did this self-justifying lawyer in all. That little word all, he emphasizes it by using it four times. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your strength, with all your might. You must love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly the conclusion that our Lord wanted the lawyer to reach that no, he couldn't possibly justify himself. There was no possibility of him doing that. It's impossible for us to do what God requires us to do because of our sinful condition. It's impossible for us to gain salvation for ourselves to justify ourselves and that's why St. Paul says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus had that young lawyer in the corner where he wanted him to be. He had him stripped of any of his self-righteousness. He had him on his knees virtually. He had him on his knees stripped of self-righteousness knowing he couldn't earn heaven. Our Lord must have been all set to lovingly Pick this lawyer up off his knees, saying to him, Now that you finally looked away from yourself, look upon me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden with your sins. Look to me, and I'll give you that rest that you so need and you so desire. I'll give you my righteousness. I'll take your sins upon myself. I'll pay for them for you upon the cross and I'll give you my perfection, my sinlessness. Rise up now, go home, be free. How much our Lord must have desired to share his righteousness with that man. But before he could, the lawyer had to entertain one more question, unfortunately trying to detract from what our Lord was so plainly telling him, just as though he were in a courtroom of some kind shouting out objection, objection. So now this lawyer comes up with his objection to what Jesus is freely offering him and freely giving him. And he says, desiring to justify himself, the man said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now let's not get all caught up with the answer to the man's question, who is my neighbor? Because often considering this text, pastors and people do concentrate on who our neighbors are. But that's not the main point of this text. Let's not let the lawyer's question sidetrack us as he tried to do also with Jesus. We know who our neighbors are. He knew who his neighbors were. Neighbors are anyone who is nigh unto you, who is near unto you. And he knew that as well as us knowing. 
Don't be sidetracked by that second question, who is my neighbor, so that you forget the lawyer's first question, what must I do? What must I do to justify myself? And friends, the good news of this great parable is simply this, that God has provided our justification for us. What must you do to have eternal life, to be justified? That's not the question to ask. The question to ask is, what has God done to justify me? Jesus Christ is your justification. Christ, by his suffering and death, is our justifier, God says. He is the one who justifies us, and he is justified who has, St. Paul says, faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified, he says, as God's great, by God's grace through the redemption, which is ours in Christ Jesus, being justified by his blood, Scripture says, we are saved from the wrath of God. God is our justifier. Don't try to justify yourself before God like the lawyer did. You can't possibly succeed no matter how good a guy you are. Consider, in fact, the words of Job of old. Job who said, if I try to justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. And that's just what happened to the lawyer in our text for today. Trying to justify himself, he only dug his hole deeper and deeper as he discovered that he could not justify himself, that he didn't love the Lord completely like he should. And his own words ended up condemning him. Mark those words well, because that's what the story of the Good Samaritan is really all about. It's certainly not about us being able to justify ourselves by our own piety. And it's not even caring about one another, as important as that is, as the story of the Good Samaritan tells. As Luther puts it, this whole account Luther says, is really about what God has done for us. What Christ, who Luther says, is the real Good Samaritan. Luther identifies the Good Samaritan really as being a parable about Christ and what Christ has done for us as a Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, what Christ has done to deliver us from Satan and his thugs who beat us down, who left us dead in the ditch, what Christ has done to breathe his life into us, and then to bathe us and to cleanse us through baptismal waters, as he did for little Lily June this morning, to bear us into the inn of his church, where we're cared for and where we're nourished on his very body and blood, until he returns again and receives us then and there unto himself. You see, on the surface, it's not about morality. It's not even about piety and the piety of the Good Samaritan. It's about the justifying work of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Steinbeck's classic book, East of Eden, Liz Hamilton serves as the matriarch of faith in her family. For those of you who have read it, She's a pugnacious advocate of biblical morality. She knows her Bible well. She reads it daily. It's her guide for life. And yet, you see through reading the book that there are some real cracks in her pious veneer. Steinbeck describes 
her use of the Bible quite sublimely, and he says, quote, her total intellectual association was the Bible. In that one book, she had her history, she had her poetry, her knowledge of peoples and things, her ethics, her morals, her salvation. She never studied the Bible or dug deeply into it, she just read it. And finally, she came to a point where she knew it so well that she went right on reading it without listening. The final line is haunting. She went right on reading it without listening. When we hear today's scripture lesson, it's too easy to read it quickly and then to move on because of its wide familiarity within our culture. Oh, the Good Samaritan, oh yes, I know what that's all about. It's about being good to one another. Not at all. Listen. Listen carefully. Because it's what God in Christ, who is the Good Samaritan ultimately, has really done to justify you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.